1: Alan. And for those of you who don't know, I'm Fred Paul, the latest addition to the rapidly growing ADH TV lineup. We're the fastest growing streaming broadcaster in Australia and the new home for common sense commentary. It's easy to watch us. Simply download the ADH app on your phone, Apple TV or other devices from your usual app store. All our content is there live and on demand. You can also listen to our shows on podcast. Just search for ADHTV wherever you stream or download your audio programs. Now, you may have noticed that the world is being increasingly run by nihilistic narcissists who think they can redefine reality while brazenly pretending they're doing it for our benefit and not their own. There are times when their deceit and self-interest are so blindingly obvious that ordinary people like you and I start to wonder if we're the crazy ones. Are we mad to think that men can't give birth? That industry can't survive without fossil fuels? That lockdowns, masks and vaccines don't stop you catching COVID? That taxation can't change the weather? That democracy is not tyrannical? and that ethnicity is not more important than character. These are just a few of the delusions that are being foisted upon us by the media, politicians, bureaucrats, and most sinisterly of all, a cabal of unelected globalists from the United Nations and World Economic Forum who are increasingly pulling the strings of supposedly elected governments, even here in Australia. Writers have been warning us about this for decades, that freedom is fragile, and those who wish to take it away will invariably do so by bending reality to their purpose. Of course, George Orwell did it most brilliantly, but quoting him is so routine these days that it's become a cliché, albeit a depressing one. So allow me instead to quote the late, great and much missed Australian cartoonist, Bill Leake. In a letter to his sister Lynn from Germany in 1976, Leake described what he thought was the defining virtue of Australian culture. Quote, one of the great strengths in Australia is expressed in the way people say, oh bullshit to everything. As long as people keep recognising and condemning bullshit, everything will be all right, unquote. Well, when Leek wrote that 45 years ago, he could not have envisaged he would one day live to see this wonderful Australian characteristic trampled by the humourless forces of political correctness. In his cartoons, Leek wittily and relentlessly called out mistruths wherever he saw them, And he was hounded all the way to his grave for doing so. Well, here at ADH TV, we too promise to call it out wherever we see it. Like you, we think we are incredibly lucky to live in a country as free, peaceful, friendly and prosperous as Australia. But we can only keep it that way if we remain vigilant against deception and hypocrisy from those who aspire to rule over us. Luckily for us, exposing people like that is also often very entertaining. Now let's get on with the show. Now the word sustainability has become so ubiquitous that it's easy to forget it's actually a relatively recent addition to our language. It virtually didn't even exist until 1975, according to this Google search of about half a billion books published from 1500 to today. Its use since 1977 has increased more than a hundredfold, and its use in everyday language has probably increased even more, especially in Australian neighbourhoods where there is an abundance of two-storey homes, SUV cars, and people who vote green or teal. But the most alarming rise of this word's use has been in education. It appears no less than 281 times in the new Australian school curriculum, and it's embedded into every subject, no matter how unrelated to the environment or science. So we hear this word constantly, and we're teaching it to our kids. But what does it actually mean? It's widely accepted meaning, is the use of the world's natural resources in such a way as to not inhibit future generations enjoying the same standard of living. But this isn't entirely true. For a start, we no longer care so much about the prosperity of future generations. We saw this during uh, the COVID lockdowns. Countries like Australia racked up debts that our grandchildren will be paying off and nobody raised an eyebrow. The financial ability of future generations to enjoy our standard of living wasn't even considered when these loans were taken out. Sustainability similarly condemns future generations to reduced prosperity. Sure, the United Nations and other globalist organizations talk endlessly about sustainable development, but this has less to do with development than it does with developed nations donating money to undeveloped ones, and even then the money is often tied to impractical green schemes. The true economic cost of sustainability is never calculated because we all know it will be onerous, especially to the world's poorest people. In some ways, sustainability for the future shouldn't matter at all, especially to the young. Young people are not encouraged to start families, and according to the latest census, fewer and fewer of us believe in God or an afterlife. So nothing related to us in any meaningful way will exist after we die. This life is all we have, according to the zeitgeist. So why should we care if the planet is sustainable or not? Well, that's because Sustainability is a religion, a new moral framework that fills the vacuum created when we abandoned old religions and traditions like Christianity, patriotism, and the family. There are many starting points for this fundamental shift in our culture, but arguably the most important one is the Club of Rome, a group of 100 intellectuals who met in 1968 to discuss what they saw as a frighteningly unavoidable problem— the inability of the world's finite resources to maintain an ever-increasing and prosperous population. This was not just a scientific problem. The club's first publication, released in 1970 and humbly titled The Predicament of Mankind, asserted that although technology had, quote, broken the back of age-old scarcities, it had also failed to, quote, provide us with an ethos, a morality, ideals, institutions, a vision of man, of mankind, and a politics which are in consonance with the way of life that is evolved as the expression of our success. In other words, all this success was meaningless without a new moral code to go with it. Enter sustainability, the idea that the less you consume, And the closer you are to nature, the more virtuous you are. But that's not how things have turned out. As it happens, the more developed a nation is, the more environmentally sound its people are. As Swedish author Johan Norberg points out in his brilliantly optimistic 2016 book, Progress, sustainability depends on economic development. Quote, Rich countries are solving many environmental problems, while the worst environmental problems in poor countries stem not from technology and affluence, but from the lack of technology and affluence. But you won't hear teachers say this in our schools. You rarely even hear it said between adults. That's because the disciples of sustainability rarely see their beliefs as religious dogma, in Apocalypse Never, longtime environmentalist Michael Schellenberger says secular people are attracted to apocalyptic environmentalism because, quote, it meets some of the same psychological and spiritual needs as Judeo-Christianity and other religions. Well, if that's the case, it doesn't do a very good job of it. While Christians go to church donate to charities, and generally aspire to lead decent, honest lives, environmentalists glue themselves to roads, disrupt industries, and tell kids they have no future. They disparaged traditional religion while signing up to an apocalyptic cult. As a culture and a moral code, sustainability is many things, but sustainable is not one of them. And now to today's Woke Watch. The Disney Corporation was founded a century ago on the assumption that there was good money to be made on wholesome, apolitical children's entertainment. And for about 90 years it worked. But in the past few years, Disney has morphed into one of its own villainous characters, mysteriously adopting a new corporate mission, corrupting young minds with concepts they are too young to contemplate. After years of sneaking gay couples into the background of kids' animations, Disney last month released the latest in the Toy Story franchise, which features a prominent gay kiss between two female characters. You won't be surprised to learn that the only kids who watched this were dragged kicking and screaming to the cinema by their woke parents. Otherwise, despite the the enormous free publicity the film enjoyed in the media over the gay controversy, it was a complete flop. The release coincided with further precipitous falls in the company's share price, which has almost halved since March last year. So you'd think that Disney executives would have got the message by now. But no, like a bunch of evil stepmothers, they are hell-bent on the destruction of innocence, even if they destroy themselves in the process. So now they've turned their sights on the humble fairy godmother. At the company's various Disneyland theme parks, women called fairy godmothers in training have traditionally performed makeovers for kids wanting to be dressed up and made up as a Disney character. But this was, the company realized, based on an appallingly sexist assumption. As we all know, men should have as much right to play one of these roles as women. But this came with a problem. In a twist that only MBA graduates and HR executives with master's degrees in gender theory could have conjured, it was decided that the men playing this role can't be called fairy godmothers in training and instead must be called fairy godmothers apprentices. Crisis averted, and thank goodness, this is gonna save an awful lot of embarrassment when these blokes are asked down the pub what they do for work. The brilliant new indigenous Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Nampajinpa Price cheekily began her maiden speech last week by saying, quote, I always was and always will be. Always will be what? You can imagine the anticipation from the Greens and Labor senators in the chamber. Price was borrowing from the popular leftist slogan, always was and always will be Aboriginal land, a declaration that Australia is built on a continent stolen from its original inhabitants. Was she about to make some sort of concession to her ideological opponents in her first statement to the Senate? If so, it would have been a huge relief for Labor and the Greens because Price had arrived with a formidable reputation. She is the daughter of legendary territory activist and politician Bess Price. She was hardened by years in the Alice Springs Council and the harsh culture wars, where death threats against anyone from the centre-right are frighteningly common. Price is arguably more able and willing than any coalition MP in recent years to invalidate the counterproductive virtue signalling that passes for Indigenous policy in this country. Well, if the senators opposite were hoping for consolation in Price's maiden speech, they were to be disappointed. Price finished the declaration, quote, I always was and always will be a proud Australian. Aren't we all? What followed was one of the most magnificent orations heard in our national parliament in a long time. Opposition leader Peter Dutton said it was, quote, the most powerful speech he had heard in all his 20 years in Canberra. Well, I am honoured and excited to say I have Senator Price with me tonight to discuss some of the points she made in that speech. Senator, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, Now, let's begin with the fact that you didn't focus... Sorry, I just called you Paul. I just called you by your last name, (laughs) Fred. That's okay. (laughs) It happens more often than you think, but that's all right. Now, let's begin with the fact that you didn't focus primarily on yourself or the struggles that led you to Parliament, as maiden speeches often do these days. Instead, you focused on your most desperate constituents, who are living in the kind of conditions that, to quote from your speech, would not be accepted in the prosperous suburbs of our capital cities. Senator, there has for many years been almost nothing but virtue signalling from both sides of politics about Indigenous policy. Do you think anybody in Canberra shares your urgency on this issue?
0: I don't know. I don't think uh, many on the Labor side and the Green side know how to be urgent about any of the issues that are affecting marginalised Indigenous Australians right now as we speak. They're either too busy worrying about what happened 200 years ago or too busy worrying about establishing a voice in the future because they want that voice to deal with the issues that they're too scared to actually deal with or make any hardline decisions on. And, you know, you're right, when I came to Parliament, I came because I want to be a representation uh, for those voiceless. I've told many uh, I was going to do this on behalf of them because I recognise that, you know, despite the challenges I've faced in life, I have been in a very privileged position. Uh, And when you're in that position of privilege, it's actually an obligation, in my view, it's an obligation for me to represent those uh, who don't have the opportunity to be there and speak. So I have to really, um, you know, largely acknowledge uh, those that have urged me to be there, uh, who are those that are are the voiceless, who don't have the opportunity to make the sorts of changes that need to be made to improve their lives. And ultimately, that's why we're elected to uh, federal parliament, uh, to be that voice for those that don't have the opportunity to be that voice.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, we're talking about problems that exist now, not exist in the future or have occurred in the past. I mean, for example, you mentioned in your speech very eloquently the, about a 30-year-old mother of three, Elena Tamina Kukla, and her two-month-old baby Orlando, who were killed in a murder-suicide this month. Kukla now leaves behind two other sons who now have no mother, Senator, is the legal system in the territory more sympathetic to perpetrators than it is to victims?
0: Absolutely it is. And as long as, uh, you know, as long as there are those that work in the space of domestic violence uh, who are regarded as advocates, who continue to push this idea that it's a a result of colonisation, that we have such great uh, high levels of violence, they're actually... perpetuating the problem as well. Certainly the justice system in the Northern Territory has a long way to go uh, in in terms of supporting the victims. Uh, As the the previous federal coalition government invested heavily in the space of domestic and family violence, Uh, and I I know that there are women's legal services within the Northern Territory that don't tick the Indigenous organisation box, but who serve predominantly uh, indigenous female victims, who once that funding is then handed on to the Northern Territory Government, the Northern Territory Government has not um, held up their end of the bargain to ensure that those services receive the full funding um, that it was agreed to by the federal government that they should get, which has meant that those organisations have to then uh, reduce their staff numbers They don't have the capacity to support the victims. But the really horrible part about it all is that what the Territory Government does, that funding that was meant for those services, they give to Aboriginal legal services because those Aboriginal legal services are predominantly Labor-supporting legal services, but they also support the perpetrators. So there's a huge issue going on there that, um, you know, the Territory Government doesn't want to have a look at. This Federal Labor Government needs to hold that territory government to account for this level you know this sort of thing taking place and these are all the things that are clear are absolutely clear and open where where the issues lie uh, where things can be done better uh, where victims are short-changed and the systems need to better serve them
1: Jacinta are Territorians becoming desensitized to what most people would describe as outright horror
0: Definitely. You know, for years we've witnessed the violence domestic violence on our streets. Prior to intervention, you'd see it all the time. And in a traditional Aboriginal context, you don't interfere with other people's business. you turn a blind eye to it, and this this also lends itself to to perpetuating this problem. And the wider community would see a woman getting bashed up by you know an Aboriginal woman getting bashed up by her Aboriginal other half and just go, it's not our problem. We're going to ignore it. And then Aboriginal people going, don't get involved because then we'll end up um, becoming the victims of violence. And that attitude has prevailed over the years. It's the reason why the intervention um, stepped in because not enough was being done to address violence and sexual abuse of children uh, and that sort of thing. And that's certainly what I'm going to continue to push uh, and to highlight going forward, um, well, well, let's because at... a lot of people in our communities have, have become desensitised to the fact that we've got such high rates of crime, violence and sexual abuse.
1: Well, well you, you addressed some of the causes there, but let's look at some specific causes, that, factors that contribute to violence and, and a sense of hopelessness in Aboriginal communities. I think there's three of them. Lack of education, lack of work and family breakdown. What could we do today to reduce these factors?
0: There's a number of things that can be done. I know that, you know, we have to look at remote communities uh, with, some real, with some real honesty. We, have, we should be looking at, well, there are some that are just being held up on life support that don't have the services uh, available to those vulnerable people in those communities to give them really uh, quality of life, uh, better quality of life. So should some remote communities, in fact, continue to be kept on life support? Um, other than that, we should be providing real opportunity for traditional owners in their country. The Land Rights Act, as it stands, uh, has diminished the opportunity for traditional owners to take full control of their land, to create businesses, which creates jobs, which creates a meaningful uh, journey through life, which gives people purpose, because we know that when adults have jobs, kids go to school, you have better functioning households, less violence, and no more dependency on welfare. And these are the things that haven't been allowed to happen in remote communities because of this idea that, you know, they live a socialist way of life. You know, it's communism in our own backyards. And, uh, and, And this current Labor government doesn't want to even open its eyes to it.
1: You might have been referring to communism when you coined this very clever phrase in your speech, opportunistic Indigenous community politics. Can you explain what you meant by that phrase? So
0: it's almost like, you know, I've heard this over again amongst other Indigenous Australians, it's it's almost like some uh, communities are run by mafias. You know, you have heads of families, Uh, sometimes there are some heads of families who have been perpetrators of violence themselves, uh, who basically attract all the resources uh, and bully everybody else and it's like dictatorships on some communities so it, it's been sort of the, the Land Rights Act has been constructed in a, in a way that it's majority rules so mob rule basically in some of these places these aren't necessarily elected peoples these are representatives of families but over time we've seen there's been nepotism and corruption uh, that's gone on in communities which has only sought to empower um, you know the the bullies of these communities and it's it 's happened over and over again this expectation that everyone 's supposed to share everything in our communities and yes there 's an element that 's wonderful about our culture that we take care of family, but it also lends itself to allowing for uh, members of family who are who are drug addicts who are uh, alcoholics and gamblers to then demand access to everything you have your income and if you 're a vulnerable person. elderly person, uh, those family members can come and strip you of your uh, welfare payments, which is now going to happen because of the removal of the cashless debit card and leave you with nothing, basically. And it's the same with the royalty system. The royalties comes along, it's those head honchos that get most of the money, leaving everybody else uh, to fend for themselves. And the system is absolutely and utterly broken, uh, but this government doesn't want to look at that to improve things.
1: Let's talk about the wider community. Australia is, we are repeatedly told that Australia is a racist country. While it's impossible to stamp out all forms of bigotry from any society, do you really think Australia is as racist as we're told it is? <laughs>
0: Absolutely not. And this is part of the gaslighting of the ideological left To make you believe, if they repeat it over and over and over again, and say it enough times, and make you feel guilty for being a non-Aboriginal person, you start to believe that, in fact, we're a racist country. We're not a racist country, and we've proven it over and over and over again Uh, with our referendum in the 1960s, with well over 90% of Australians voting um, for Indigenous Australians in support of Indigenous Australia. Uh, It's evident from the get-go that we are not a racist country. You know, we've repealed. Uh, racist legislation in the past, the Ordinance Act, all of those sorts of things um, to prove over and over again. It's like how many times does a nation have to prove itself um, uh, to, that, that we're not in fact racist? And what's happening is those that continue to push this agenda, they're the only people gaining from this. Nobody else is actually gaining from this. Absol- but absolutely, it's emotional blackmail right. yeah. and it's gaslighting.
1: It is gaslighting. Just before you go, Jacinta, there's a convention regarding Maiden speeches that all senators queue up afterwards and congratulate the speaker, welcoming him or her to the chamber. I couldn't help noticing that Labor Senate leader Penny Wong scurried off as soon as you'd finished talking. And in fact, she didn't seem to pay much attention to you at all. Has Senator Wong reached out to you to congratulate you on your speech and to offer to work together to end Indigenous disadvantage? (laughs)
0: Uh, No, I I don't expect Penny to. I I thought it was highly disrespectful um, that the leader of the Senate, one of Labor's leaders, would in fact behave this way, but I guess it's not surprising uh, at the same time. You know, Senator Wong came to Alice Springs in the lead-up to the election and um, quite publicly uh, uh, thanked Marion Scrimger for welcoming her to her country. Marion failed to correct her and say, well, this isn't actually my country, the traditional owners are standing next to me here. So this sort of disrespectful behaviour has been on display all over the place. I mean, they want to give Pauline Hanson a hard time um, for being absolutely sick of the virtue signalling uh, and call her out. And yet, Senator Wong is very, I mean, she's very, Let's. she's very smart. She did it very sneakily. She snuck out, um, as opposed to making a big scene about it. So... But no, she, has, um, she hasn't bothered to, to congratulate me or welcome me into the Senate.
1: Senator, we could talk all night um, and we certainly haven't raised the biggest issue of, of today and that is the voice of parliament. We'll, we'll have to get you back on the show to talk about that some other time. But thank you for your time tonight and best of luck in the Senate. Thank you so much, Fred. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Jacinta Nampaginpa-Price, who we hope will help shift the focus of Indigenous policy away from empty political gestures and back to where it should be, which is improving the lives of Australia's most vulnerable and disadvantaged people. Well, it's always amusing when politicians make sanctimonious declarations about weeding out corruption, and then moments later do exactly the opposite. You'll recall that during the election campaign, Scott Morrison said he wasn't in favour of a new federal corruption commission, to which Anthony Albanese snidely said, Why do you fear an anti-corruption commission? What is it you're afraid they will find? Well, today we could ask Albo the same question. As soon as he got into office, Albo scrapped the Australian Building and Construction Commission which investigates, among other things, union thuggery on building sites. One of the biggest defenders against the ABCC's investigations is the CFMEU, a major Labor donor and supporter. The most recent charge against a CFMEU officer in September last year was for allegedly taking bribes from a Chinese construction company for favourable treatment from the union's members. Albanese also wound back conditions introduced last year by the previous government requiring super funds to disclose what they had spent their members' money on before their annual general meeting. Well, that's a curious compromise in the management of hard-earned retirement funds of working Australians, don't you think? To paraphrase you, Albo, why do you fear such disclosures? What is it you're afraid they will reveal? Former Queensland Senator Amanda Stoker has written incisively about this in the Financial Review and she joins me now. Amanda, thanks for joining me.
2: Lovely to be with you.
1: Amanda, you call this a quote, masterclass in the politics of diversion. Can you elaborate on that? Why is this, why is the public's attention being diverted and why is this a masterclass?
2: Mr Albanese went into the election pretending to be Mr Integrity. He pretended that because the coalition wanted to see checks and balances on any federal um, ICAC-type body, that they had something to hide when, in fact, it's a fundamental principle of liberty, for instance, that all people should be equal before the law. But while his virtue signalling on the integrity front and people are distracted with the idea that they don't like politicians and think they should all have the book thrown at them, he is at the very same time taking away accountability measures that make the construction industry safe, make it productive, make it a place where people can get um, a job done for the price they contracted, make it a place where people from all walks of life can freely associate And at the same time, he's taking away accountability and transparency measures on the super industry, all of which were put in place to make sure that mum and dad super investors could make informed decisions about what happens to their money. You can't be pretending in one forum to be Mr Integrity whilst at the same time taking away measures that are in place to ensure integrity. Um, The hypocrisy involved in that is why I'd suggest it's a masterclass in the politics of diversion.
1: Oh, well, well said. I I couldn't agree more. The New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption has become an occasional kangaroo court smearing the reputations of innocent people who then have no recourse to justice. The design of these pseudo-judicial bodies is important for precisely this reason. Amanda, what precautions are being made to ensure this federal corruption watchdog is as judicious and fair as possible?
2: Well, the fact is we don't know what Labor's proposing to do here. They went to an election without a clear proposal. They had seven motherhood statements. They called it their seven principles for design, but they haven't told us anything about what those motherhood statements mean, and they haven't presented a bill. They've promised to do so by the end of the year, but um, in circumstances where the coalition's bill was the subject of consultation that spanned several years, not because of delay, but because of the complexity involved in getting the design of something like this right, to make sure it doesn't become an instrument of tyranny, the idea that they will present a bill and ram it through before the end of the year means it necessarily won't have the scrutiny and the consultation and the transparency that's needed to make sure that the mistakes of the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption aren't repeated.
1: Well, speaking of transparency, during the election campaign, Anthony Albanese insinuated that his political opponents had something to hide from a corruption watchdog. Amanda, what guarantee do we have that this body will be apolitical or impartial in the allegations and people it pursues?
2: Look, at this point in time, we don't have any assurance that the body will have that kind of integrity. Um, The only suggestion that's been made on this front from Mr Dreyfus, the Attorney-General for Labor, um, is that there will be a committee of parliament that will have some oversight Um, on who is appointed to run the thing Um, but we don't know the nuts and bolts of whether that's going to be um, mere consultation, whether it's going to be a joint decision about who gets appointed um, or whether or not it's going to be something um, different altogether. We just don't know that but in circumstances (laughs) where, I know it's right, Right. this is really quite troubling. Yes. Um, And when we don't know the elements of the design that will try and ensure that um, a fair go can be received by whoever comes before it, no matter their politics, Um, it could very well end up being an instrument of tyranny no matter which shoe um, or which
1: foot the shoe is on. Just what the country needs, another committee. The, the, the ICAC chief is a former Labor attorney general, I believe. Just, but just returning to the election, some observers say that the coalition lost so many of their seats to Greens and Teals because they weren't promising to act urgently enough on climate change. Amanda, is that how you saw the loss?
2: Look, no doubt that was a matter that was important to a number of people Um, particularly in some of those urban seats. You could ask a very good question though about whether the reason those people felt the issue was so compelling was because in many ways, instead of tackling a lot of the misinformation around the issue of climate change, um, as a coalition, our policy had been in a sense to indulge it by providing a less bad version of the same policy Um, rather than to boldly do what um, I would suggest is something in the interests of all Australians, and that is to invest hard in affordable energy, knowing that technology will, in time, um, do a lot of that heavy lifting. There's an equally compelling argument, I would suggest, um, maybe even a little more compelling, that the reason we lost was because we didn't boldly enough stand for the beliefs upon which the Liberal Party was founded. Um, And if there had been a clearer articulation of the ways in which the policies that we were putting forward to the electorate were going to embody those principles of small government, of individual liberty, of a hand up but not a hand out, and I think quite importantly, culturally, the idea that we are... Um, all entitled to a quality of opportunity, but not a quality of outcome, Um, that we all have different things to bring to the table and that what matters is not the attributes on our skin or um, with which we are born, but rather what is deeply within us, those talents and strengths um, that are different for all of us but that we all bring to the table. Those are the deeply liberal values that make us strong. Um, but being a Diet Coke version of the left, I would suggest is not just wrong in principle, but it's wrong in marketing. Why would you go for the Diet Coke version when you could have many of those hard left parties offering you full strength?
1: Well, well speaking of those liberal principles and beliefs, the former government helped to implement possibly the harshest blow to the economy and society Australia has seen outside wartime. This was done on the basis of what is now turning out to be inconclusive advice from the health industry. Amanda, do you think at least some voters in the Liberal heartland thought the party had abandoned those core Liberal principles during this time?
2: I think there was a a clear segment of the community that really wanted to see more strength from the coalition in government in pushing back on some of the most tyrannical measures that came out of the states. Now, I'm of the view that the coalition didn't inflict those, um, but there was an opportunity to stand against some of the enormous overreach that came particularly out of Western Australia, Victoria and my home state, of Queensland. I think would have made a very big difference if we had a clear narrative from the start that articulated the importance of freedom of movement um, and limiting the ability of the state to interfere in people's ability to go about their daily lives. Um, And I think that the failure to challenge some of the um, most unreasonable measures, like for instance, closing state borders, um, after vaccines, for instance, were well and truly available, were all opportunities to show um, a fidelity to principle that a segment of the community really wanted to see from us and really the person who paid the price for that biggest, I would suggest, is me um, because it mobilised those people to vote for some of the minor parties of the right in the Senate, particularly in Queensland.
1: Well, just getting back to the new government, Albanese has called a jobs summit, which will be held in in September. This is a very strange thing to do. You'd think if any party understood how to create jobs, it'd be the Labor Party. Amanda, what is Anthony Albanese's strategy here? Well,
2: look, I'd first disagree with that. I'd say the Coalition knows better than anybody else how to unlock the power of the private sector to um, surge forward in a way that creates jobs and we did that well over several terms of government. We may have had flaws but that was one of our great strengths. But if you're a student of history you'll you'll think back to the Kevin Rudd era. He went into an election pretending to be somebody of the centre-right, pretending there was no difference between what he had to offer and what the Howard government had to offer. And then as soon as he got in, he held his his summit and the summit was all about getting onto the agenda all of those more radical ideas that he couldn't possibly put before the electorate at an election because they would have slammed him for it. Well, Mr Albanese has done the same thing. He's gone to an election offering very little um, that he could be criticised for on the ideological left. Um, He's been smart about that because he knows Australians don't like radical lefties. But if you hold a summit and the experts tell you that you need to have these hard radical ideas, well, then you've got licence to put it into your agenda. Um, That's the real risk I would suggest comes out of this job summit. Um, It's a cloak for the Albanese government to sneak in a whole lot of re-regulation of the economy Um, the introduction of much more powerful unions um, and no doubt many other measures that would greatly have scared the horses had they been put before Australians before an election.
1: Well, Amanda, we could create a lot more jobs simply by building coal-fired power stations. This would also reduce the cost of living, don't you think?
2: Look, I think that is... A sensible thing to do. Um, If we could take away a lot of the institutional disincentives that exist to um, investing in coal-fired power, we could not just make energy more affordable, but in doing so, we could make life easier for small business. We could help to tackle inflation, which we know many people are struggling with. And if you pair that with, for instance, um, bringing back the um, Australian Building and Construction Commission, you could help to keep construction more productive, keep the cost of housing and construction under control. These levers would all make a really big difference to the ability of Australians to be able to get on with their lives
1: uh, wonderfully, wonderfully said Amanda, and more common sense as usual. thanks for your time. we'll have to get you on it we, There was a bunch of things we wouldn't we wanted to talk about, but uh, we'll have to. Discuss them next time you're on the show. Amanda, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. That's Amanda Stoker with a typically candid and honest view of what's really going on in Canberra at the moment. And before I go, look at this recent performance from the United States Vice President.
0: Uh, Good afternoon. I wanna welcome these leaders for coming in to have this very important discussion. Um, about some of the most pressing issues of our time. Um, I am Kamala Harris. My pronouns are she and her. I am a woman
1: sitting at the table wearing a blue suit. And... um Well, I'm a man sitting at this studio wearing an expression of absolute bewilderment. Not because Kamala Harris has somehow risen to the office of Vice President of the United States, which is bewildering enough, but that she claims to be a woman. A woman? What even is that, Kamala? Nobody on your side of politics is able to answer that question. Are you the same gender as these two blokes, Assistant Health Secretary Rachel, formerly Richard, Levine, and Assistant Secretary in the Office of Nuclear Energy, Sam Brinton? Or is your definition of a woman different to theirs? The dilemma of defining Harris's womanhood aside There's something even more mysterious about the vice president. She dropped hints last week that she would run for the presidency in 2024 if Joe Biden opts out, as everyone except his wife Jill Biden thinks he should. But if she wants to be president, why on earth should she wait until 2024? She currently has more opportunity, indeed obligation, than most of her predecessors to step up and rescue the US from an ailing and failing president. It is abundantly clear that Joe Biden is too old and senile to function in the Oval Office. His administration is starting to spin out of control at a time of both domestic and international crises, not least of which is the distinct possibility of nuclear war in Europe. Most previous vice presidents would have realized what their duty was at this tenuous moment in history and risen to the occasion. Not only that, but the long cherished prize of first female president of the United States is right there within her grasp. And she won't even seize it. Can you imagine how exasperated Hillary Clinton feels right now? Of course, nobody wants Harris to tap Joe on the shoulder which might be why she keeps sabotaging herself with gaffes, nervous cackles, and kooky introductions about her gender pronouns and fashion choices. She knows she was selected as Joe's running mate because of her race and gender, not her political or diplomatic skills, of which we've since learned she has absolutely none. So all she needs to do as vice president is have dark skin and be female only trouble is, in this age of gender fluidity, who knows for sure who's female and who's not? Well, that's it from me. Thank you so much for your company. And again, tell your friends to download the TV app on their phones and televisions, where all our rapidly expanding content is available live and on demand. And I'll see you tomorrow night at 9pm. Good night.